Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kisson. And this is a show for you if you're bored of people arguing on the internet over subjects they know nothing about. At Trigonometry, we don't pretend to be the experts, we ask the experts. Our fantastic guest this week is a wonderful comedian, Jeff Norcott, professor of politics at Birkbeck University in London. Eric Kaufman is a spike columnist and the author of What Women Want, Fun, Freedom and an End to Feminism. Ella Whelan is Matt Goodwin, who is a professor of political science at the University of Kent and a senior fellow at Chatham House. Matt, welcome to Trigonometry. National populism is obviously, we've seen a rise. How much of that has got to do with the economic crash in 2008? Mm. Well, this is a million-dollar question, right? So if you're on the left, you basically argue, and I'm not making judgments. I don't know, don't know where your <laughs> politics are. Got an idea. Um, but if you if you lean leftwards, you tend to say all of this is about economic scarcity, right? It's the old Marxist line that effectively anybody who votes for nationalist movements or movements that express unease about mass immigration uh, that they are driven by their worries over basically income. Uh, wages um, and and scarce uh, economic goods and that usually an extension of that argument is that the people are being manipulated by uh, ruthless elites in society whether it's the media whether it's these conspiratorial uh, you know right-wingers trying to divide and rule um, the evidence I would argue and certainly we argue in the book is pretty overwhelming in pointing in a different direction which is that if you think for example about some of the most successful national populists that we've had in the Western world coming in places like Switzerland, in Austria, the Netherlands. They broke through amid very low unemployment rates, some of the lowest unemployment rates in Europe, very strong growing economies. Look at law and justice in Poland, really came into power on the back of a rapid economic expansion. Take Britain. Nigel Farage and the UK Independence Party first really broke through in 2004 after 48 consecutive periods of growth. And then when we drill down to the individual level and we look at who's actually supporting these movements, and I'm sure we'll come back to it, they tend to be working full time. They tend to often be on not amazing wages, but you know, standard average uh, wages. Um, and so the unemployed, the kind of real losers of globalization in a sort of visceral sense, they are not generally providing the bulk of support to national populism. I mean, it's worth remembering, even in the, 19, in the 1930s, many people on the left like that comparison at the moment. A lot of the unemployed and those who are out of work are actually voting for the communists, uh, not for uh, the, the national socialists. And national socialism, national populism are two very different movements. Um, but the idea that the left pushes, that this is all about economic scarcity, um, I'm afraid is not actually very convincing when you look at the evidence. One of the interesting points in the book is that one of the interesting facts you cite in the book is that Donald Trump voters had the average highest income of the three available candidates. Mm. So if you take Bernie Sanders, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, mm. his voters actually had a higher average income than any of the other two. And uh, I wanted to come back to the fact that you've been talking about this for a long time, actually. You've been predicting this, mm. unlike most people who predicted Brexit and Trump very confidently after it happened, mm. right? You actually predicted it many years before. You've been talking about this since like 2010, at mm. least, from mm. what I've seen an interview did with The Economist, for example, where you were talking actually about Anders Breivik, I think, mm. in the context of this. And that is not a time in which we were having these conversations at all. So can you take us back through that period, if, if it's not the economic crash that Francis asked you about, what has happened over the last 10 to 15 years that has caused this movement to emerge in this way? 
Yeah, well, um, one of my pet frustrations about the public debate is that we focus on the short-term factors, right? And we're obsessed about what happens during campaigns. I mean, I just finished reading Hillary Clinton's book, What Happened, and I realised she still doesn't know what happened, <laughs> but, largely because she's obsessed with what, what happened during that campaign period. Now, I would say, actually, if you, don't, if you look not at the last 10 to 15 years, but actually at the last 30 to 40 years, you can really see a number of deep currents uh, begin to come forward and start to reshape democracies in the West quietly, but in a powerful way from below, creating the conditions that have allowed national populism today to get to the levels of support uh, that, we're, that we're seeing. And this is partly about a backlash to the rise of what you might call the new left in the 60s and the 70s, which pushed a very... Uh, liberal uh, agenda, the expansion of rights for minorities, uh, the uh, support, if not celebration, of mass immigration, the shift towards supranational institutions like the European Union. And in the 80s and the 90s, and particularly in countries like France and Austria, you began to see the uh, beginnings of a backlash to that new liberal consensus. Jean-Marie Le Pen, for example, who used to run on the, on the slogan, Le Pen of the people, yeah, or the Austrian Freedom Party in York Haider, an earlier generation of populists that we now tend to forget because we like to think everything is unique to our era. Uh, York Haider used to say, um, I say what the people think, right? And it was that notion that he's tapping into a, a, a concern, particularly among an alliance of social conservatives that were often quite affluent and blue-collar workers, um, who together felt... Uh, very uncomfortable with both the scale and the pace of change that was happening within the broader nation. And that was partly about immigration. It was also about, uh, in some countries, increasingly um, a political establishment that seemed to be um, holding the people in contempt, certainly neglecting them. Um, and also increasingly in more recent years, the specific issue of Islam in Europe uh, and the refugee crisis that, that, that followed. So by the time you get to Really, the 90s or 2000s, and you start going through things like 9-11, long before the financial crisis, you're beginning to see these movements actually reaching very high levels of support uh, in some countries, joining national governments, often doing well in very prosperous, affluent areas, um, and really winning over um, low-skilled service workers, the self-employed uh, blue-collar workers. So we talk a lot about the collapse of social democracy today, but actually you, you can really be, trace that to the early to mid-2000s. Uh, and now the crisis kicked in, and no one's saying the crisis isn't important because it is. Um, it wasn't the underlying driver, but it did exacerbate a number of these uh, emerging value conflicts in the West um, between kind of culturally liberal middle-class professionals um, and those social conservatives and workers. And you begin to see this kind of gradual polarisation uh, within a lot of Western democracies. And I think what mattered in a big way was... The national populists themselves also changed. They became more articulate, they became more sophisticated, they started to tone down white supremacism, they started to basically get a bit more in line with where public opinion really was on these issues. People like Gert Wilders started to say, well, let's be pro-LGBT, but also let's be anti-Islam at the same time. So you started to see these kind of curious innovations that we didn't really have before. And of course, that then really brought together, you know, the public demand for 
um, a sort of a challenge to that liberal consensus with the sort of party supply, with these parties just being a bit more um, uh, competent, a bit more articulate at how they're bringing these groups into the political system. And today, where we are, you know, I think the interesting macro question, at least, is when you look at what's happening in the West, does this signal that we are at the end of a period of great change and volatility, or does it instead signal that we are at the beginning of a new period of uh, great change, fragmentation, and polarization? My view is that if you look at all the evidence, we are very much at the beginning of a new period of great change uh, and, and uh, volatility. When we talk about Brexit, the majority position is the one that's demonized, mm -hmm. which is quite incredible in and of itself. So when you talk about most people think this, I think there's so many issues on which most people think something, and that is the position that is demonized, which is an incredible place to be in, isn't it? Yeah, but it shows how completely out of step the political establishment and, to a certain degree, the media are with public opinion. So the fact that, I mean, I was a Brexiteer, um, and, and I see that as a pretty standard left-wing position, mm. um, but the fact is the vote was announced, and then I think it was probably about 45 minutes afterwards, we got to celebrate in the spiked office for about half an hour, and then we were like, right, we're on the defensive. Mm. And, yeah, the biggest political mandate in British history has been systematically demonised and, like, viciously demonised for two years straight or whatever point we're at now. Uh, and I think that isn't coming from people. People aren't stopping leavers in the street and hurling eggs at them and saying, like, you've put the country to hell, it's MPs and it's political commentators who are really uh, viciously against Brexit. I think that tells you about the separation that's going on, the kind of big lines in the sand between those who are the rulers and who make the laws and those of us who are ruled to a certain extent. What I find interesting about Brexit is this, we get quite a lot of comments and in particular comedians who are sort of, uh, that sort of very, the left, sort of Corbynite left and they, the criticism that they always put to me is, you never get any left-wing people on. And I say, actually, we do, but a lot of them uh, support Brexit. And it, a lot of seem, people seem to think that in order for you to support Brexit, you need to be on the right. Mm. But, that's, but that's obviously a fallacy, because there's a lot of people on the left, especially what you consider to be the old-school Tony Benn-esque left, they all support Brexit, or a large majority of them. Well, Corbyn does as well, by the yeah, way. So. Yeah, he does. He's just not honest about it. <laughs> <laughs> no, he isn't honest about it. He's kind of sold out his side of the left in relation to Brexit. Well, I guess it's because the main Leave campaign, the main faces of it, were uh, Tory MPs, or they, I don't think you can necessarily call them rabid right-wingers, but there wasn't a vocal left for Brexit other than spiked. We had our sort of, as big as we could be, our campaign, and you had some Labour left people who campaigned, uh, campaigned for Brexit. But on the whole, there wasn't a coherent left-wing movement for what I thought was this great opportunity to break through years of mush and status quo and not moving anywhere in politics, then you have this moment where lots of working-class people are saying we want to change in politics and we want to have a greater say and we want to shake things up and the left's nowhere to be seen. And so uh, not that I revel in the fact that that is the case, but I think it tells you a lot about where the left is today. If they were so blind as to not see this as an opportunity to change politics quite dramatically. I mean, I remember in the two weeks after the vote, 
you had news about how the Tory party was going to disintegrate, about how Labour was going to disintegrate, Westminster was crumbling, everyone was falling apart. And I was like, yes, like, <laughs> this is what I vote for. This is great. I mean, you know, I, I never have voted in general elections. When I was younger, I used to spoil my ballot. And then my mum was said, they never read the like essay that you write, you know, they just yeah. see that you haven't ticked the box. So anyway, um, I, I, and that was a conscious decision because I thought none of these people represent what I want in any way, shape or form. I'm very, very against picking the best of a bad bunch. But Brexit was the first thing ever in my political career. Where I was like, right, this is something I definitely know that I care about. I'm 100% behind this. Let's go. And that was... I think that was a lot of people's experience. I mean, the voter turnout for Brexit was ginormous in comparison to general elections. Yeah. And you just see then the general election after it, numbers completely tanked again, which tells you what you need to know about how important this thing was and how tragic I think it is that it's being slammed to such a great extent. A lot of the, uh, the the media narrative around populism immediately after, say, the Trump or Brexit vote, you know, turn to you know who voted for Trump or who voted for Brexit and where do they live, and you can see that the cities tended to be, say, Remain voting, and and outlying areas tended to be for Leave, and those areas tend to be a bit more deprived. So people kind of jump to these conclusions. Well, it's the people the left behind; they're the ones who voted uh, to Leave or they, they voted for Trump. The problem with that, of course, is that, you know, just take London as a city, it's got a large number of people who are not white British, it's got a large number of people with university degrees, a large number of young people. So that makes it fairly unusual demographically. So the only real way to do that study properly is to take a white working class person in London and a white working class person in the north, in a, in a, in a mining town, for example, and compare them. And when you do that, you actually see, a, if anything, that person in London is slightly more likely to have voted leave. So that's the kind of method where you're actually looking at individuals, individual level large-scale survey data, not looking at these election maps or talking about opioid crises or so on. So yeah, the, the first takeaway really is that uh, it's almost all about immigration when we talk about right-wing populism, not left-wing populism, Podemos and Corbyn, that is about the economy, but right-wing populism in the West not, again, in India or in, even in Eastern Europe, in the West. It's about immigration. And the ac academic literature is actually pretty solid on this as well. Uh, the academic literature shows this and wouldn't dispute this. Now, some, of course, would dispute it. But certainly when it comes to immigration, a lot of the academic, there was a meta-analysis done, which is an analysis of all the literature. And they, they find, essentially, that how poor you are, whether you're unemployed or not, whether you've lost your job, those are not things that predict your immigration attitudes. And these are not things that are driving right-wing populism. So the mainstream narrative right now is essentially uh, people have nothing to, to live on, the people don't have a job, like you say, and they're lashing out against immigrants because that's where we normally channel our anger when we've, we've lost out and on whatever. And you say... Well, I say no. I say essentially what this is about is anxiety over ethnocultural change, threats to identity. I mean, I'll give you a, a kind of question that we might ask people. Say in this country, we ask Brexiteers, you know, white British Brexiteers, how concerned are you? Uh, how much of a problem is uh, pressure on public services? Zero to 100. 100 being, it's a big problem. Um, and people give it about a 40, you know, Brexit, leave, leave voters give it about a 47, 48 out of 100. And all you have to do is stick the word 
immigrants putting pressure on public services. So it's the same question, how much of a problem is pressure on public services, but it's immigrants putting just two words, pressure on public services. It goes from sort of 48 out of 100 to 70 out of 100. For Remainers, it's the reverse. And actually, it makes sense. What the Remainers are doing actually does make sense, because if the problem is pressure on public services, the part of that problem that is accounted for by immigrants has to be smaller than the problem itself. So it makes no sense hmm. to get a number moving from, say, 48 up to 70 because the problem, the, the immigrant-fueled part of the problem cannot be larger than the whole problem. But that's a, just a way of, by way of explaining that this is not driven by people's worry about pressure on public service as economic things, which is sort of the narrative of probably both parties in a way, because that's what they know. They've got economic policy tools. It's also safer because we can talk about, well, people are feeling pressure on material things, schools and hospitals, and that's why they're upset about immigration. It's not that nasty cultural stuff, but actually it is that cultural stuff. Well, let's break that down when you say the nasty cultural stuff. Right. What, you're not, uh, I've read your book very carefully, so you're not saying that the majority of the people who are on the populist right hate immigrants and they're racist, right? You're not right. saying That's, that. I'm not saying that, no. I actually think we need to open up a conversation about white identity, first of all, and secondly, something I call the white tradition of national identity. Uh, and to, to do so in a fair-minded way. So there is a certain kind of toxicity around the subject of white group identity. By Mitchell. Oh, by, really? By really? Really? <laughs> really? Is that right? I hadn't noticed. Right. <laughs> so, and, and, you know... It uh, never ends well, though, does it? Let's be fair. Well, when you get three of a group of people together and go, right, we're white, and we identify for being white, it tends to end in camps. And <laughs> well, no, I, I disagree with you. So, for example, I don't think identifying as white or identifying as black or identifying as Hawaiian, you know, we have to look at these things differently. I mean, all of those identities can be abused. You can go, you can fixate and be extremist about it. But just, if you think about the world, you know, 80% of the world's countries have an ethnic majority. You know, the Persians in Iran, it could be Swana in Botswana, Japanese in Japan, etc. Those, those, you know, these people identify with their group, with their culture, and they're not out killing each other. Now, some will, but, but when we think about what are the predictors of genocide, for example, it's, it's, an, it's an ideology that says this country should only be inhabited by either a particular group or people who adhere to an ideology like socialism or like Islam, Islamism. And if you don't adhere to that, you're in the way and we're going to exterminate you. So it doesn't necessarily matter whether it's a particularist identity like ethnicity or it's a universalist identity like Islam or socialism. There are extreme versions and moderate versions, and you can have a moderate version of white identity as you can a moderate version of Islamic identity. And there's nothing wrong with that. And that's sort of the normal state of affairs in most countries most of the time. So I think this focus on white identity as toxic actually doesn't have a basis in fact. Even though we know, yes, we're all thinking about the Nazis. You're wrong. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we're all thinking about the Nazis. You know, I, I lost relatives in the Holocaust. You know, yes, of course. Um, but that's one case. And we actually have to say, okay, all of the countries in the world that have ethnic minorities that identify with their group, and then all of the places in the world that have a genocidal event. And we have data sets, actually, where we can look at this question systematically, and we find, well, actually, you have to have a number of conditions in place, one of which is this exclusivist focus on identity. So it's not just saying, you know, we are Hindus in India, but it's, you know, 
everybody who isn't a Hindu is garbage and must be exterminated. That's, that's a very different thing from just saying we identify as Hindu. So you can have moderate versions and extreme versions of any identity, whether it's a minority identity or a majority. So I, I really think, actually, we have to start to think about it being, you know, okay to express a moderate white identity, or what I mean by that is ethnic majority identity. Because again, 80% of the world's countries have these ethnic majority identities. If we try and say you can't have that, I actually think we are making things worse. If anything, I think that's the greater risk than if we say, okay, it can be expressed, but it's got to be done in a moderate way. never felt like you do pro-Brexit material, yeah. especially in Zone 1 in London, yeah. and just feel you lose. But wherever you go, but wherever you go, there were a lot of people that voted Leave. I mean, this is one of the weird things about it, you know, with, with the sheer numbers game. You know, you talk about in London, you have, what is it, 37% voted Leave? I mean, yeah. if, you was in, if you was in a room of 100 people, right, and 37 of them voted Leave, 63 of them voted, that would feel like a lot of people. I mean, and in some ways, at times, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference of, you know, just looking around on a pure optics level, who's in the majority here. So there's always a lot of people that, most of them don't give as much of a shit as we do, you know, in the comedy game. A lot of them are, most people are reasonable people, you know. The Remainers that you hear online moan, the ultra Remainers are exactly that. Most people are happy to have the piss taken out of them. And the other thing is, is it's not pro-Brexit material as such. I think that it's very hard to do any comedy about something where you're saying, I really believe in this man, and here's some jokes about what I believe in. I mean, comedy almost exclusively is, comes from what you think is shit, you know. Like, so, so it's it's aiming the satirical fire back at the re, the rem, you know the remain way of thinking. And I think that um, I mean the simple rule I have is like satire is always possible. Is if if it's the three H's right: hysteria, hypocrisy, and hyperbole. Right mm. now, if you think about all those things and you look at you know some wings of the remain camp: <laughs> hysteria, <laughs> you know, yeah. hyperbole. Yeah, yeah I yeah. think we'll still have sandwiches. You know, hypocrisy. Yo, so that's the big one. Hypocrisy. There's yes. so, much, so much of that playing on both sides. Yeah, so yeah. much of that playing. Oh right? yeah, yeah, totally. And they're they're all they're, they've become like each other. That's what's so odd. You know, I think ultra remainers have become exactly. And maybe that's what you sometimes they say to defeat something. You have to become the beast in order to beat it. But you you sometimes think, do you realise what you, what you're saying here? Do you realise how fucking mental <laughs> it, it sounds to you? And I think that. I think the one bit of Project Fear that has worked, actually, um, I think a lot of it failed miserably, but I think the thing of making it seem like um, a no-deal Brexit is actually the cliff edge. I think that that's actually worked for most people, you know, for the Remain camp. The language is stuck, isn't it? You know, a cliff edge Brexit crashing out of the EU. There was an interesting stat about, you know, they talk about the reduction in GDP against... Um, because it's not actually a reduction in GDP, is it? It's against what Britain would have otherwise had. So the worst case scenario, right, was over 15 years. This is Mark Carney's prediction, so you know this was pessimistic. I mean, if that, if that geezer told you it was raining, you go, hang on, I'll just check out the window, you know. <laughs> yeah. But they, he said it would be 7.7% lower over 15 years. Now, that roughly works out at about half a percent of GDP a year. Now, you think that's not, obviously, that's a big sum of money. It could build hospitals and schools. Would the average punter recognise that year in, year out? I don't know, you know? But they've been quite successful in creating that sort of environment, that sense of fear. Well, actually, the stats show that about 70% of Leave voters would happily sacrifice a chunk of their income if yeah. it meant, for example, reducing immigration. Yes, right. yeah, and, and taking back... Well, I mean, the top thing in the Lord Ashcroft poll was, was sovereignty, wasn't it, mm. right? Self-determination in a pure sense. But that is one thing, right? And I had this chat with the producer of the MASH report, Chris Stott, who's an ardent remainer, a really good bloke. And, he, you know, we just, we just said this is the one thing, like, 
he doesn't understand, you know, yeah. and, and at least he's honest about it. They just don't get it. They just don't get it as a principle. And you think you, in a way, you have to respect that. There's, we, we, two years on it, if people don't understand sort of total self-determination now, they, ne they never will. And I think that, you know, they'll say things like, oh, but we do still have it. We don't because there's things that we can't do um, as a country. And I think that immigration was interesting because like, it's always perceived that, that if you was... If you was against freedom of movement, that's because you wanted really low immigration. It's not for a lot of people, certainly myself, it wasn't that. It was just it just seemed quite an absolutism, you know, freedom of movement in perpetuity for all time. You think that, you know, that any nation state shouldn't be allowed to, you know, sort of appropriate their needs based on what was happening in their country at that point. I just thought it was strange that that was 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 decided centrally, you know. And also, you know, when it comes to immigration, it's sometimes for a long time now in Britain, people have been able to successive governments have been able to go well you know it makes it a negative thing doesn't it we go well you know the EU is better for us freedom of movement it's just one of those things that comes with you know goes with the territory whereas if you actually take responsibility for the amount of migrants coming here you actually have to sell it to the public in a positive way you know one of the reasons that the Windrush scandal had broad sort of sympathy from the public is that was how that that was sold to the British people at the time. People are coming to Britain because we need these people to come and do our jobs, whereas for too long now it's just been seen as one of these unfortunate byproducts of being part of the EU. Well, that's what I was going to say. I'm an immigrant here, mm. right? You know, Francis' mother came here as well to this country. I don't understand how they've created this cultural meme in mm. society that if you want to control or reduce immigration that's racist. I don't I don't understand mm. how that how that that came to be the I mean there's no doubt there's some people that, that want to end it that are yeah, racist. Absolutely. You know, like but the I think there was that watershed moment, wasn't there? Do you remember Gordon Brown and there was that there was that woman who who Gillian uh, Duffy. Yeah, Gillian yeah. Duffy, right. She yeah. spoke to him about a lot of different things, you know, a lot of stuff that was very pro NHS mm. and then she ended it by saying something about immigration and he called her an awful woman. And, and I think it was like, you know, things were changing very fast. You know, the Labour government had sort of underestimated, you know, the impact of it. And, and I don't think it necessarily comes from a place of total cynicism, but, but they just hadn't legislated. For it. It's a way of filing it away, isn't it? Well, if you've got any concerns about migration whatsoever, then, then you're um, a racist. And, you know, the problem is, is it just breeds uh, uh, a backlash, right? And, um, and I think that, you know, I think, I think that for this economy... Of this country to be successful, there will be, need to be, you know, of course there'll be. Like no one ever said migration was was ending. But again, that's one. I suppose that's one of the remain bits of hyperbole that that has stuck. The idea that you know people will say, well, well, I won't be able to go and work in Europe now. You go, you know, that relative of yours that worked in the United States, right? That's not part of <laughs> you know the EU. So these things will be possible. Admittedly, there might be slightly more. There might be a, you know be more forms to fill out and stuff, and it won't be. As guaranteed, but um, but yeah, the absolutism has been has been quite jarring. Well, listen, guys, if you've enjoyed it this week, uh, as I'm sure you have, subscribe as always to our channel. Uh, click that bell button next to the subscribe button on YouTube so you get notified when we release a video. Uh, do you want to do the social media stuff? Yes. Um, yep. Yeah, if so, if you're enjoying it, please follow us on TriggerPod at uh, Instagram. On Twitter, uh, Trigonometry on Facebook, and uh, I think that's it. Yeah, that's about that's it. That's it. See you next week. Bye bye. Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.